0: Thank you for downloading from Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about Ravi Zacharias and the team at www.rzim.org.
1: My dear friend, tonight I want to tell you that Jesus wants to reach out and touch your life. He wants you to be picked up by him in his tenderness, take you by the hand, rise you to your feet again. He wants to reach out and put the arms of love around you.
0: Jesus Christ continues to be the most significant figure in history. We know how he is viewed today, but how was he viewed in his culture? Hello and welcome to Let My People Think with author and apologist Ravi Zacharias. This week, Ravi begins to take a closer look at the person of Jesus Christ. His words and his methods were unlike any others, both then and now. What was it that made him so different? How did he challenge the views and values of his world? Let's listen as Ravi brings part one of his message, Jesus as they saw him.
1: I want to look at the life of Jesus in three different categories. It was the physicist Helmholtz who said, if you want to understand the nature of the eye, you must understand the properties of light. If you want to understand the nature of the eye, you must understand the properties of light. And the other day I was sitting thinking about this whole business of how people view things differently, and I came to the conclusion, our biggest problem is that we look at life with our eyes rather than through our eyes. We look at life with our eyes rather than through our eyes. The eye is the instrument to see, not the instrument to define value. The definition of value comes elsewhere. You look into the mirror, but you go to the faucet to wash your face. And what we very often do is look with our eyes and define with our eyes, and hence the term materialist. We define ourselves as material beings from beginning to end. I want to look at Jesus tonight from three vantage points. And if you don't know him personally, please do yourself a favor. Please do yourself a favor, try and reject my style. Try to blind yourself to the approach I am taking. Only try and weigh out whether what I'm saying to you tonight makes sense or not. So often we reject a message because we want to reject the messenger. If you can somehow do it, I want you only to hear the message, and I want you to see what it is I'm trying to say to you. The first aspect of Jesus' life, I want to see him in the essential nature of his person the essential nature of his person. Who was he in essence? Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist philosopher who has made existentialism very, very popular. We've often heard the word existentialist. What does existentialism really mean? existentialism, if defined philosophically, sounds more confusing. So let me define it most rigorously so nobody knocks me for it, and then popularize the definition. Where it really says existence precedes essence, what it means is what I do determines who I am. What I do determines who I am. In other words, the Word of God tells me and to behave a certain way because of who I am, existentialism reverses it and says, on the basis of what you do, you can define who you are. So you see, if I want to define life a certain way, I act a certain way. And it has really got the definition the wrong way around. Jesus' essence was the fact that he claimed to be the Son of God, claimed to be equal with God, and I want you to see him in two thoughts there. In the essential nature of his person, number one, he was perfect in purity. Number one, he was perfect in purity. If I were to ask you tonight, would you please write a definition of purity? I think you'll have a very difficult time. The reason for that is this. It's the same way if I said to you, could you please define nothing? You cannot define nothing because nothing by definition partakes of something. When you use the word nothing, you're really saying no thing. And so nothing is defined as the absence of something. And that is exactly the problem we have with the word purity, too. If I say to you, I am a pure individual, you will go away assuming there are some things he doesn't do, there are some places he doesn't go, there are some thoughts he doesn't think, there are some habits he doesn't espouse. You will define my purity in terms of the absence of something, and legitimately so. Let me have you focus your attention on this scene. I had one of my students in drama do this once, and he held the audience in spellbound silence. He portrayed the transfiguration scene, and this is the way I'd given him the script to, to portray it from the readings in a book that I'd read and a record that I'd heard. There's a man living on top of Mount Tabor in the mind of this particular writer using his imagination, and the man is calling himself Elian. He pretends to be a hermit living at the top of Mount Tabor and he says as hermits we are accustomed to seeing visions and dreaming dreams. He says but when I woke up this morning I was going to see something that was not a vision, that was not a dream, it was something that jolted me into reality. I was standing behind the tree this morning when three, four individuals, Jesus, Peter, James and John began to quietly make their way up to the top of the mount. For those of you, ladies and gentlemen, who've been to Israel, you will agree with me that the top of Mount Tabor is one of the most beautiful settings in Israel. Topographically, it is striking. You stand on top of the mountain and you look in one direction, you see the sprawling valleys of Megiddo. You look in another direction, and on a clear day, you'll see the spires of Nazareth. You look in a third direction, you'll see the calm and the lovely waters of the Sea of Galilee. You turn around and you look in the fourth direction, you see the tender and the gentle curves of Mount Hermon, snow, snow-capped for so much of the year. And as you look around all of this, and a quiet cathedral stands atop Mount Tabor today, I, I was picturing with this man, imagining himself to be Elion, what really happened. Jesus, Peter, James, and John, gently making their way to the top of the mountain, and Elion is watching them. He says, Jesus was talking to them, instructing them in many ways. Then Jesus left the three disciples, moved to the top of the mount all by himself. And he says, all of a sudden, the body of Jesus began to glow with an incandescent radiance a whiter white the human mind could not conceive. And as the body began to glow whiter and whiter and whiter, suddenly the heavens were rent in two and I saw two figures descending into the presence of Jesus. And I had barely enough strength and breath in my body to cry out the names of Moses and Elijah. But no more had these two men descended when I fell prostrate onto the dust of Tabor All I had seen was Moses and Elijah descending, Jesus' body beginning to glow. And as I fell face down into the dust of the earth, suddenly I heard the voice of Almighty God reverberating through the valleys below, crying out, This is my son. Listen to him. When I think of Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, I think of that transfiguration scene. And if I were Peter, I would have done exactly what G- what he did with Jesus. And many times I feel that way. This afternoon, turning on a television program for a few moments, watching a fellow being interviewed, mentioning the name of God. I said, who is this fellow? And then he starts talking about the reason most people fear death is because the Christians have caused that fear. He says, I don't believe in any of that. I'm not a humanist. I'm a deist. Those are the kinds of boys I'd love to take on in a debate who only know how to slam something, never know how to defend theirs. Who only know how to break eggs, they never know what to do with them. Slam, slam, slam. Jesus again to blame. Christianity again to blame. Blame everybody, you see, but don't blame ourselves. And he said, and the problem with Christianity is they have infused a morality into this world that is more condemnatory than exaltative. And then he goes on to say this. He says, and that is terribly selfish. Who told him that? And if it is selfish, is that good or bad? When you see this, when you hear this, when you travel around and hear of the broken homes, see the young children with no homes to go to, think of the broken dreams, broken lives, think of all of these places where political ideologies are destroying human life, somehow you pine within your soul the way Peter pined within his soul when he said to Jesus, let's stay here. Let's stay here. I don't want to go down from this mountain again. And the reason was, Peter was privileged to see the transfiguration of our Lord. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something. The purity of man is the absence of something. The purity of Jesus is the presence of something. you with me? The purity of man is the absence of something. The purity of Jesus is the presence of something. And many a times as I start writing one of my chapters in the book on worship is the God whom we worship and language becomes exhausted concepts become beggarly and I find myself just desperately trying to nudge at the truth. I like what one philosopher says about the gods of the Greeks and the gods of the Mediterraneans. He says this, it is true of the Greek religions that it is not a fact that the gods abandoned the people because the people became so depraved, but the people abandoned their gods because their gods became so depraved. When you read Homer, when you read Aeschylus, when you read many of these writers or you go on to read Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, you begin to see a kind of a plea from these thinkers, won't you get the concept of deity at least unmingled with dirt and unmingled with impurity? how we play a game in front of other people. And I want to tell you, as soon as we behold Jesus face to face, we'll find out what purity really is. When I look at my life, I think of Augustine. And by the way, Augustine was one of the greatest minds that ever lived. And he ran and ran and ran and ran from God, till finally, through his mother, he was marvelously converted. And Augustine says this at one point, I placed myself behind myself all the time. You took me from behind myself, put me in front of myself. I saw myself and was horrified. And then he goes on to say this. You know, I was sharing this with my... Uh, seven-year-old daughter one day, and even she came to grips with this idea. It fascinates me how those little minds can come to grips with such profound thoughts. I was talking to Sarah one day, and I was talking about Augustine this way, one of the great men of God, and I said, you know what he said once, honey? Because she was asking me a question about why there are some good people who do such bad things. And I was saying, I I was talking to her about Augustine, and I said, listen to me carefully now, Sari, and see if you understand what I'm saying. I said, what Augustine said was that there are two kinds of loves within me. There is a love which loves the good. There is a love which loves the evil. There is the love which loves the good. There is the love which loves the evil. And Augustine says, and the best thing I can say about myself is that there is a third kind of a passion that looks at both of them. There's a third kind of a passion that looks at both of them. I have a love which loves the love that loves the good, and I have a hate which hates the love that loves the evil. Did you follow me? There's a passion looking at both of them. One loves the good, one loves the evil. And the best thing I can say about myself is that I love the love which loves the good and I hate the love which loves the evil. And that tiny little girl says, Daddy, that's exactly the way I feel sometimes. I want to do good things, I want to do bad things. And there's something within me that hates the bad part of me. And when you look at your soul, when you look at your will, when you look at your ambitions, when you look at your goals, when you look at your dreams, things are almost never as they appear to be. Things are almost never as they appear to be. And some of you sitting here tonight may be close to other people who haven't got the faintest clue how impure your life is. May I tell you tonight, there's something wonderful about the fact that you can bring your impurity and turn your face towards the living God. Because when you look at God, you're looking not at the absence of impurities, you're looking at the very presence of purity. There's a second quality about his essence, number one, perfect in purity, number two, he was a model in charity. He was a model in charity. I know sometimes it might never sound this way, and forgive me if it doesn't, but at the core of my being, I find myself an extremely tender and an extremely compassionate person, and sometimes, therefore, the worst kind of a professor. You got all these students coming and exploiting me, you know, Sir, would you cancel the exam? Would you do this? Would you do that? And I go home and have kittens over the whole thing. I don't want these boys to have spent sleepless nights. And the thing that I like, I will often say this to young couples who come to me to ask some questions on future relationships, etc I always say to them, there is never any reason to be unkind. There's never any reason to be unkind. You can be strong, you can be tough, You can be very, very severe in the things you're saying, but you don't have to be unkind in what you're saying. And I look at Jesus. I don't know how many of you have ever read of what lepers really go through. You can think back of Jesus' day. In the rabbinic laws, you would never never come closer than six feet to a leper, and on a windy day, a rabbi would never come within a hundred feet of a leper. Jesus reached out, looked into the eyes of the leper, talked to him, and probably for the first time in memory, the leper sees somebody reaching out and touching him. Michael Green says, This was not some different kind of a man. This was a different kind of a God. I think of the whole issue of uh, the woman with the issue of blood. Twelve years she'd had it, or even longer maybe. The Bible tells us that she had seen every physician. If you read the Talmud, the Talmud tells you how many different kinds of cures there were. And in the Levitical laws, a woman with that kind of an ailment was an untouchable. Every piece of furniture she touched became unclean. Think again, why did she do this? Jesus is walking through the center of town, thronging masses are reaching out to go out and touch him. Why, in the name of reason, does an unclean woman have the courage, I strongly suspect, because she believed that Jesus would never condemn her for it. She would have had to push aside people who, if they knew what her difficulty was, would have been ruthless with her physically, trying to maim the girl for having touched them. She pushes her way through the crowd, reaches out and just touches the hem of his garment. He turns around and says, who touched me? And out of no fear in her heart, she looks at him and says, master, I did. And he says, daughter, great is your faith. Go back. You are well again. I believe with all my heart, Jesus' hands were amongst the most powerful aspect of his ministry. He reached out and touched somebody. You know, last graduation at Harvard University, do you know who the convocation speaker was? Mother Teresa. She delivered the challenge in graduation. Do you know what she spoke on? Virginity. Here are these brilliant Harvard grads sitting and almost laughing under their breath that this silly woman, garbed in some kind of a non-elaborate outfit, standing there with crouched shoulders and and a face that is completely wrinkled, talking to brilliant Harvard grads about retaining their virginity. And they were just sitting there, probably not even paying attention to the depths of what she was saying. Unknown to Teresa, unknown to the crowd, there was a group of Indian children in the Boston area who had heard Teresa was in town and who had been rescued by her in the streets of Calcutta. They pleaded and begged their parents to take her just so they could see Teresa. And they were told to wait till Teresa had finished and they were out there in the wings and the columns and this gentle woman, unable and not even knowing what was awaiting her, as soon as she finished her speech and with this this, uh, Yugoslavian woman with her hands folded with the Indian greeting, thanking them for the privilege given to her to address them, all of a sudden the little children could wait no longer. They knew she was finished. They burst through the side of the wings there and one by one just leaping out into her arms. Arms as she clutched them to her bosom suddenly recognizing so many of them and then the Harvard graduates rose to their feet and gave a thundering applause and an ovation that almost seemed like it was never going to die that whole message suddenly lived because they had seen her hands my dear friend tonight I want to tell you that Jesus wants to reach out and touch your life He wants you to be picked up by him in his tenderness, take you by the hand, rise you to your feet again. He wants to reach out and put the arms of love around you to give you that significance that even a tiny little baby needs that is unable to converse linguistically. Somehow when those arms are put around that child and gradually the fidgeting stops and the body begins to relax and within moments that child is asleep. "'Come unto me,' says Jesus, All ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I, says he, will give you rest. Perfect in purity, a model in charity. So the second major thought, and very quickly, the definitive nature of his ministry. The essential nature of his person, the definitive nature of his ministry. Jesus was a preacher. I keep telling my students this ten times a day, say to yourself, Jesus was a preacher. Jesus was a preacher. The rabbis sat down and taught. Jesus stood up and preached. Jesus in Mark 138 says, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. He was a proclaimer. He was a student. He knew rabbinics. He knew the languages. And he would use it very, very powerfully. He had the style and the stance of a prophet, he used his tongue like a weapon to carve out people before their eyes so they can see themselves and I like the way Jesus uses words. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a massive difference between the use of fine words and the fine use of words. There's a massive difference between the use of fine words and the fine use of words. Listen for a moment. I think the the language can be so beautiful it can lift you into into standard areas that you really can't dream of. And by the way, I believe words are more descriptive than paintings are. A good word is better than a thousand pictures. I'll demonstrate that for you. It won't take me more than a minute. Listen. W.E. Sangster, the British preacher, he says he was at a garden party and then he says this, I just picked up myself a glass of punch when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this dainty but bulbous woman ballooned towards me. This dainty but bulbous woman ballooned towards me. Can you draw that? If you do, do you know what you'll do? I don't know what you do. This dainty but bulbous woman ballooning towards you. You will force your view of reality in one way by that picture upon me. But when Sangster says this dainty but bulbous woman ballooned towards me, my imagination goes to work and I do with it what I choose. The picture forces me to think in one way. Look at, listen to P.G. Woodhouse, that uh, writer describing his sidekick, Jeeves, bringing in a reluctant visitor. He says he brought in this reluctant and scrambling visitor and shoveled him in to my apartment. Shoveled him in. You can't draw that. And if you think you could draw both of those, I dare you to draw this. It is given, the credit is given to Alexander Pope. Talking about the conversion of water into wine... I want to tell you this is a masterpiece. Listen. He says, The conscious water saw its master and blushed. Isn't that beautiful? The conscious water saw its master and blushed. Words, passion, reality. Do you realize that some of you are going to enter into the kingdom of God because one night this week you were here and heard a couple of fellows talking and singing something. How is it? It's because words are reflective of reality. And when the right words are used, reality is clutched at, and it changes the entire dimensions of your life.
0: That concludes this week's program on Let My People Think. You've been listening to Ravi Zacharias in a message titled Jesus As They Saw Him. If you'd like to purchase a copy of this broadcast, order at rzim.org or rzim.ca for those listening in Canada.
1: The modern rejection of God has increasingly become not so much a matter of his existing, but a matter whether or not his existing really matters. With our busy lives, we have condensed morality to, quote, living a good life, arguing, surely if there is a God, he will not punish a good person for honest mistakes. But honestly, why is this all we are willing to think about? C.S. Lewis once commented that what distinguishes humans from animals is the human desire to know things, to find out what reality is like, simply for the sake of knowing. The question posed to me again and again across campuses, across religious traditions, across the globe is this, can't a person lead a good life without Christianity? But friends, this is not really the question. The question is, do I need to bother with Christianity at all? Can't I evade the issue and get on with just living a good life? These questions mark our very real intention to avoid that fearsome knock on Christianity's door, the knock that would make certain there is or isn't someone on the other side. It is a deliberate attempt not to know whether Christian faith is true or false because of the uncomfortable predicament if it does turn out to be true. How is this an honest mistake? You see, rejecting Christianity on the grounds that it might not matter is by no means an honest mistake. You may not know whether or not you want to become a Christian, but you do know you are interested in living a good life. Living a good life is a mere shadow of the reality you were made for. Morality is a mountain we were not meant to climb alone. We may reach a certain point, but we will lack the vision needed for the truest part of the journey. You see, in God's economy, we learn of a very important truth. One cannot really be good until one is first
0: When you visit our website, we hope you'll take the time to look at the work being done through our humanitarian arm, Wellspring International. Through your prayers and support, we are able to help organisations that assist women and children in need. From an orphanage in Africa to housing and jobs for women caught in sex slavery, Wellspring International is at work showing God's love to a hurting world. The mission of RZIM is to reach and challenge those who shape the ideas of a culture with the credibility of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need your prayers and financial support to continue in our goal and hope you will consider partnering with us. To donate, you can click on the Donate tab on our website or call us at 1-800-448-6766. We'd also love to hear your comments about our radio programmes, questions you may have, or prayer requests you'd like to share. You can email us at radio at rzim.org. When you contact us, be sure to let us know what radio station you're listening to. Let My People Think is a listener-supported radio ministry and is furnished by Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, Atlanta, Georgia.